Our speaker tonight, the guy that's sharing his testimony, I've known for a few years. He's uh, been a co-partner in uh, Leading Celebrate Recovery. He's the ministry leader in Turlock right now. He's our regional rep. Will you guys please welcome John as he comes up to share his story with us. We're good. All right. You guys ready to celebrate our recovery? All right. I'm in recovery from addictions to drugs and alcohol. I love Jesus, and my name is John. Um, 2 Corinthians 1.4, which we just heard, uh, tells us this. It says, he comforts, comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. Uh, would you please pray with me? Papa, thank you for this opportunity. I just ask that um, whoever needs to hear this kind of crazy story of, of me... Um, actually hears the incredible, miraculous story of you. Um, Let them hear that. Uh, Whoever needs to hear it, let them hear it with open ears and an open heart, Lord, Um, that maybe just someone will say, I'm just like that, or I'm not alone, or maybe there is some hope for me too. I pray this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. All right. So this, this whole thing is a story of a young person searching for, thy, for their identity, okay? I was born in Merced, California, the youngest of five children. God gave me two wonderful parents who loved me and provided for my needs the best that they could. I remember the first 10 years of my life being pretty normal, and I thought every other family was exactly like mine. It wasn't until I spent the night at a friend's house that I discovered every other family is not like mine. That night I saw my friend's dad so drunk that he couldn't make it from the car to his bedroom without the help of his eight-year-old son. That was the first time that I had ever seen the effects of alcohol. Later when I told my mom about this, she said that he might be an alcoholic which was a term that I'd heard in reference to my dad before, but I had absolutely no idea what it meant as a 10-year-old or an eight-year-old kid. See, we never talked about it at home. I guess that was our family secret that my dad was an alcoholic. But I didn't know why it was a secret. In my mind, if my dad was an alcoholic, then everyone should want to be an alcoholic because my dad was awesome. (laughs) My dad didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't cuss, he loved us and spent tons of time with us. I didn't see anything bad or any reason that somebody should keep that a secret. But we did. I remember my mom telling me something about how my dad would act differently if he was actually drinking. And I found out later um, in my own recovery that my dad's recovery from alcoholism, sorry. I'm a little caveat, Um, I lost my dad uh, in January of 2020, and he would have had, uh, well, he did have 58 years of sobriety. Anyway, <clears throat> back to it. Uh, my dad's recovery from alcoholism began 18 or 19 days after I was born. Okay, so in the fifth grade, uh, my family environment began to change. Uh, my grandfather had sold a family business a prior year, and my dad was faced with finding a new job because he thought he'd worked there for the rest of his life. Uh, My parents decided to purchase a 7-Eleven franchise in Merced. Dude, I thought this was the greatest thing ever as an 11-year-old. I mean, free Slurpees, come on. (laughs) Whew. 
I was having a blast working there. I was saving up to buy a new bike. Um, but here's some of the things that I learned as an 11-year-old behind the counter of a 7-Eleven store is that a lot of people drink beer. <laughs> a lot of people smoke cigarettes. They were families that I knew, families that my parents knew. And this one for an 11-year-old, well, growing up in my household anyway, was really big. Even people in law enforcement <laughs> drink and smoke. This was a big deal for me. I remember looking at all those cigarettes and all that beer and those doors and thinking that at some point I was going to try every single brand. And sooner or later, I did because it was like a game to me. And then there was the pornography. Lusting over pornographic magazines became my very first addiction. I just didn't know it at the time. Life at home was also different too. The structure that I'd grown up with, where we sat down at the dinner table every night at 5.15, um, that was gone. Uh, we very rarely ate dinner together anymore, and we only went to church on Christmas and Easter. Uh, by the eighth grade, I was smoking pot and drinking as much as I could. By the time I started high school, I was smoking pot every day, and when I drank, I blacked out every time. By the end of my freshman year, I was using cocaine and other drugs. There's no doubt that cocaine became the love of my life, and I began to steal money to get it. Uh, I, was no, no I was also no longer partying with people my own age. Basically, I was partying with my friend's parents. So I was partying with people that were between 10 and 30 years older than I was. Throughout all of this, obviously, my relationship with my parents was strained. Uh, my mom couldn't stop trying to fix me. First, there were the counseling sessions. And then she and one of her friends invited me to go to church. I was raised in the Catholic church, and they invited me to go to one of those Jesus churches. And I wasn't going to go to one of those Jesus churches. She even took me to a doctor at Stanford because she thought I might actually have a chemical imbalance in my brain that was causing me to act out in these ways. Go figure. I did have a chemical imbalance. But here's the thing. My mom also had groups all over town praying for me. And today, I thank God that she never, ever gave up. My dad, on the other hand, remained pretty quiet, which you might think is kind of strange, being that he's a recovering alcoholic. I remember through all of this, we would still go out to breakfast every single week. And sometimes at those breakfasts, we didn't even speak. We just had breakfast, and then we went to work. But it was during one of those breakfasts that he invited me to an AA meeting. And he told me he couldn't guarantee that it would work for me because he knew I was doing drugs. And he also shared with me that that's why he never approached me before because in his era, in his way of thinking, someone who did drugs belonged in prison. So he was looking at me, his son, going, oh my gosh, my son belongs in prison. That's how he felt inside. Anyway, he invited me to my first AA meeting. Um, and what he did is he, he shared his experience, strength, and hope with me. Well, I got to tell you, that was so awesome. I walked out of my very first uh, AA meeting so pumped up that I was going to be like the best AA member ever after one meeting. <laughs> and the reality is that over the next five years, I would go to several dozen meetings scratching by my own power to try to get 30 days. And most of the time when I got that chip, 
I was lying. I, was not, I did not have 30 days. But it was in August of 1985 that I moved in with my brother uh, and his family in Sacramento. He had just purchased a 7-Eleven store, and um, he was graciously trying to help me get away from all the badness in my life. So I did a geographic, and I moved in with them, and he gave me a job. Within a few weeks, I moved in with one of the girls that worked there, and it was a perfect match for disaster. The rest of that year, I lived mostly in a blackout. Um, I can't remember all of the events that led me to December 10th, 1985, or even what happened or where I was that day, but I wound up right here in Modesto at my sister's house. And I can't remember any of the conversation except for one sentence that she said when she opened up the door as I was pounding on it. She opened up the door and she said, you know what, John, there's places for people like you. And two days later, I was in a one-hour family counseling session that turned out to be an intervention into a 28-day program. So when my family left that day, um, you know, because they go through the whole thing and everybody's crying and I was crying and will you stay? Yes, I'll stay. Um, And when they left, I didn't have any cigarettes, so um, I'm going to read you what I wrote and then I'm going to tell the truth. Sorry. Sorry. What I wrote was, uh, when, my parent, when everybody left that day, I asked one of the other patients, the prettiest girl in the room, if I could bum a cigarette. Now, this might not have any significance to anyone else, but I received that cigarette from my beloved wife, Karen, and we've now been married for 34 years. Squirrel moment. I was just reading this to my wife as we came. She goes, you need to tell the truth of what really happened there. And what really happened there was I had just been doing the ugly cry for like two hours. There's no way I was going to ask somebody if I could bum a smoke. So actually one of the other counselors actually did the asking for me. So that's the truth. I had to come clean. I couldn't even speak. I was in such a mess. Okay. So there's the truth. So anyway, I was there for the standard 28 days. And when I left, I moved back in with my brother and his family. He gave me my job back. I went to 90 meetings in 90 days. I tried to do all the things that people around these rooms tell us to do. I went to 90 meetings in 90 days. Um, The 28-day program said we have weekly aftercare. I went to those. They said get a sponsor. I did. Um, But here's the problem. I really called my sponsor. Karen and I spent a lot of time together. I remember having more money than I knew what to do with because I was no longer buying dope. Um, in the reality, uh, I really thought that things were great, but the reality was I was not prepared for temptation. I was praying and I was writing my journal every day, but I was not working the steps with my sponsor. I'm going to say it again. I was not working the steps with my sponsor and my support group was just as weak as I was. Proverbs 26, 11 says this, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness. The very first friend, old friend that I saw, who offered, I used. The next day I was completely demoralized. I will never, ever do it again. He offered again, I did it again. It was just like that. I couldn't say no. So then I knew I was going to do it again. I didn't want to face Karen, so I took the easier, softer way. I just disappeared. I didn't call. I didn't, I didn't take any of her calls. Within 30 days, I was on another cocaine bench. But it was on July 14th of 1986 that I checked myself back into the very same treatment facility, and I have not had a drink or a drug since. That's 34 years. 
But I, I want to tell you what happened when I was there because it's really, it was really kind of a turning point for me. Um, after I'd been there for 24 hours, I was completely filled with fear. I couldn't think of any reason that treatment was going to work. How could listening to the same counselors go through the same lessons with me taking the same notes in the same workbook turn out any different than it did the time before? I was terrified. I actually felt like I only had the next 28 days to live because I don't know if I could, you know, I didn't feel like I could make it through this again. So, that night I went to an AA meeting, NORSAC in Sacramento, and I found a new sponsor, um, the most outspoken, surly, grisly dude in the room. I asked him to be my sponsor. He said yes, and he said this, John, you know what? I'm not a collector of blind kittens, but if you want to do the work, I will work with you. If you don't, hit the road. And you know what? That's exactly what I needed at that moment. During the next 28 days, I tried to change everything about my life, and it was all out of fear. If I'm honest, it was all out of fear. My brother held my job for me and offered me my, a room again at his place, but I went to work for a painter who was in recovery and was set up to move into a sober living home when I got out of treatment. I began working the steps with my sponsor. Everything I did was about my recovery and with sober people. Everything I did was about my recovery and with sober people for like two years. I went to uh, meetings, multiple meetings every day. Um, and on a day sometime late in 1986, working the third step with my sponsor on my knees in the rain in his backyard, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. <laughs> Second Corinthians 5.15 tells us this. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So I continued to see Karen at meetings from time to time. She really didn't want to have anything to do with me after I just kind of like disappeared. Until one day, late in December of 1986, when she agreed to have Christmas dinner with me. We began dating again. Um, we were still very involved in recovery, both together and separately. Um, we started a cool NA group in um, Sacramento, North Sacramento. Um, we were married on June 27th, 1987. Uh, today we have two grown daughters, Kelsey and Jessica, and two granddaughters, twin girls that are at my house right now, Sky and May. So, in late 1989, I got a job uh, driving a bread, bread truck, and we moved to Fresno. And I really thought that all my financial problems were over. I really, our income doubled overnight. We had incredible medical benefits and zero debt. And the thing is, Karen really didn't want to work. She wanted to stay home with the girls. And she, we were able to do that. So it was just like, what a blessing is this? So first I want to tell you some mistakes that I made when we moved from Sacramento to Fresno, because it's really important. Uh, one is I didn't connect with the recovery family, family when I moved. Um, I went from going to four to five meetings a week to going to three, four, three to four meetings a year. Um, two, I didn't attend church even though Karen <laughs> repeatedly asked me to go. And the last thing that I, the mistake I made was I found out how easy it was to buy things on credit and it started like this. 
This is a Kirby vacuum cleaner salesman. <laughs> I bought that Kirby vacuum cleaner on credit for like 3,500 bucks. And within 15 years, I had close to $100,000 in credit card debt. Matthew 6.24 says this, no one can serve two masters for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now we've had to chip away at this debt for years, but by being faithful to everything that is his, 100% of that debt has now been paid for. In 1993, we followed my job and a promotion to Aptos, awesome place. Uh, we found a church home there, and we became very involved. I began reading the Bible and going to Bible study. There were other men there um, that helped to disciple me and hold me accountable. As I surrendered control and began to trust others to help me, my relationship with Jesus began to grow. I began to pray again. I was also involved with youth ministry, the men's ministry, and was a member of the church council. Uh, we hosted a small group in our home for decades um, then, in 2001, we got our first computer. At least the first one that was fast enough to actually surf the web. And it didn't take long for me to discover the seemingly limitless world of online porn. And I knew it was wrong. And sometimes I could abstain for months and months at a time, but when I did look, it could be for hours and hours and many days or weeks in a row. I, I felt like I was a binge drinker. Um, and what had really happened in honesty, as I had transferred, in for 15 years of sobriety, I had transferred from one addiction to another addiction after 15 years. And it wasn't until August of 2010 that I would admit my sexual addiction, and it was during a sermon series um, at New Life, where I attend. And God spoke to my heart with the following two verses. The first one is from 1 Thessalonians, and it says this, then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. And the second one is this, and I'm gonna read it about three times, sorry. From 1 Corinthians 7, 3, uh, 3 and 4, it says, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and this is a part that you really need to hear because this is the part that just struck me. And the husband gives authority over his body to his wife not me, not mine. Today, through God's strength and grace, lust is no longer control of my life. It was also in 2010 that there were some folks nagging, I says asking here, but really they were nagging me to help them start a Celebrate Recovery at New Life in Turlock. I have to say that I didn't really want to get involved, especially when they told me that I have to go through another step study. I mean, what could I learn that I didn't already know. I'd been sober for 24 years. Come on. The answer to that question is a lot. A ton. I reluctantly went to my first CR planning meeting. We hadn't even started the CR yet. It was a planning meeting and I literally broke down crying. And if you guys are going, well, that just sounds really weird. Guess what? It felt really weird too. But this is what was going through my mind. Okay, so there was about 25 people in the room. I only knew, I only knew like six of them out of the 25. And I was a mess. But this is what was going through my mind. Why would I ever have left a community that accepts me exactly how I am? Even though I didn't know these people, they accepted me exactly for who I was. 
I didn't have to be anybody different. And so today I keep coming back. I've completed multiple step studies since then. I love every single one of them. God uses every single one of them to show me something new in my life, either in my heart, my mind, that needs to change every single time. And he's been faithful with his strength, guidance, grace, mercy, and love. So I'm a simple guy, and I have to keep my, re- my recovery simple too. Um, surrender is my focus every day. Surrender is my focus every day. As you've just heard, my path to obedience has been slow, right? It's been slow. But God has been so faithful. With every yes I say to Jesus, I can feel more of his blessings. That doesn't mean he gives me more when I say yes. It means I can feel them. I can feel more of his blessing when I say yes. Saying yes to serving um, at church and at Celebrate Recovery has been another blessing. In fact, many blessings. Because whether you guys realize it or not, when I say yes to serving at CR, when I say yes to giving my testimony, you guys are blessing me every single time. You guys are a blessing to me. When people say forever family, I used to think that was the stupidest thing ever. I love being a part of this family because it doesn't matter if you know, I'm from New Life and you guys are from Big Valley. It doesn't matter. We're all a part of Celebrate Recovery. We are a part of God's family. Yeah. Amen? So but here's the big blessing that God continues to put on my heart because I truly believe that honesty is the rock-solid foundation of all of our recovery. If we cannot be honest, we cannot have recovery. And it's this. It's the blessing of confessing, James 5.16, which we read earlier tonight too. Uh, this is the paraphrased version because I love it. Make this your common practice. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. And I love living together with you guys whole and healed. Taking this journey with brothers and sisters without the wedge of our secret sins between ourselves and God is so incredibly powerful and healing. I know I'm a long way from perfect and I have to surrender again and again, but I hold on to the promise that the Apostle Paul lived by in First Philippians 1.6. It says, I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on that day when Christ Jesus returns. So I started uh, this whole thing out by saying this was a story of me searching for my identity. Well, today I know my identity, and I get it out of God's word. And I'm going to be honest and say that I gleaned this from um, Hosanna Wong in her piece that says, I have a new name. So my identity is this. In John 15, 15, he calls me his friend. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, he says, I am chosen, and so are you. Uh, Ephesians 2.10, he says, we are his masterpiece and his workmanship. Um, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, uh, my body is his temple. Those promises go on and on and on. So if you're new here tonight, I want to tell you something that would have totally turned me off when I was new, because it did. I want to tell you, keep coming back, because that's what everybody says. Just keep coming back. If you don't feel like, if you don't feel like coming back, come back anyway. Honestly. Come back. Come back when you feel like it. Come back when you don't feel like it. Just keep coming back. Sooner or later, God will do the work in your life that you cannot do for yourself. Okay? And I still do in these, the math is, I was going to say, I still do for 12,177 days, but it's different because this is like two years old. But anyway, and I, I will tell you, my dad went to celebrate recovery until the last six months of his life, and he was 90 years old. 
Okay. He was a guy, honestly, it was awesome. Most people didn't even know his name, but they knew on gratitude night when they had a potluck, he was just the old man that brought the orange jello. <laughs> it's like, it's like, and he, yeah. And he walked like that Tim Conway guy on the Carol Burnett show with his jello. And you're just like, don't drop the jello dad. But anyway, his, he, he just didn't miss a beat. He knew he needed to be there. He knew he needed to be there. Anyway, um, I want to tell you this, and we sang about this tonight, and I actually made a note on here. We sang uh, that song that says, I am who you say I am. This is going to get me. And in my father's house, there's a place for me. In my father's house, there's a place for you. Okay? And what I want to tell you is this. Jesus loves you exactly where you are today. There's nothing you can do to make him love you anymore. And there's nothing you can do to deserve that love. That's what his mercy and grace are all about. He's calling you to come home and come to the table. You see, that's a place. There's a place at his table just for you. And that's the point that I want to make right before I close. I believe there's a place in your father's house for each one of us. And you know what? Nobody else can take that place. He's waiting for each one of us to come home if we're not there. Or he's waiting for us to say yes. There's a place at the table. I like to picture it as an empty chair. And guess what? No one else can sit in that chair but you. That's your chair. So come on home. Thank you, guys. Love you. Hey, it's here for John one more time. Hey, uh, for some reason in church world, we think we can only go to one CR. There's a lot of CRs that meet in our area, and I encourage you guys, man, hit the CRs. Hit the CRs. John's is in, uh, at New Life in Turlock, uh, right off the freeway, so make sure you check that out. You guys, start, you guys meet Monday nights? Yep. Yep. Good, I, I guessed right. Awesome, so um, those are the nights that you wanna get there. Um, hey, if you're looking to keep coming back, which is what he said for you new visitors, um, or maybe you need to make sure you keep coming back. We got lots of places for you to serve, and so make sure you, you check out the information booth and we'll get you guys dialed in. But let's stand and let's close with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever the next. Amen.